Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It took the podcast quite a while, but we finally have an episode with pirates. Today's special episode is by Mike LaMonica, a PhD student at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, French corsairing in the Americas during the War of Spanish Succession tells the story of French pirates who acquired the right to legally raid the high seas. Pirates need no further introduction, so I will turn it over to Mike. My name is Michael LaMonica. I'm a PhD candidate at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And today I'm going to talk to you about French corsairing in the Americas during the War of the Spanish Succession. Now a corsair is the French term for a privateer, and I'll intermittently use both terms over the course of the episode. The War of the Spanish Succession doesn't occupy a very big place in the popular consciousness today beyond historians who study the period and a handful of enthusiasts. To the extent that your average North American has even heard of the conflict, it likely occupies some dusty recess in the back of their mind, likely from a long-ago European history course. It's often thought of as a wholly European conflict, where some magnificently perruked monarchs fought a war over contested inheritance rights thanks to generations of Spanish royal inbreeding. Now, while this is true, the war had a wider impact that reverberated far beyond the borders of Europe. While the Seven Years' War, fought half a century later, is more properly called the First quote-unquote World War, I think that we can call the War of the Spanish Succession the First Transatlantic War. Violence in earlier European wars had certainly spread to the Americas, but both the scale and the stakes were higher in the War of the Spanish Succession. Let's start with a quick background to the war as a refresher for some and maybe a first-time introduction for others. Spain was the most powerful European nation of the 16th century. It had built the first truly global empire thanks to the massive amounts of wealth brought in by the exploitation of its vast holdings in Central and South America. For a variety of reasons, its power began to wane in the 17th century, and France, ruled by the Sun King Louis XIV, surpassed Spain as the predominant European power. Spain was ruled by a branch of the Habsburg dynasty, the same family that ruled the Holy Roman Empire, a vast confederation of Central European states. But by the end of the 17th century, the Spanish branch was failing. King Charles II had a variety of physical and mental ailments brought on by generations of inbreeding and was incapable of producing children. Lacking an heir, it was clear to everyone that Spain and its immense world empire would fall into the hands of a foreign dynasty after his death. The question was, which one? The Austrian branch of the Habsburgs, who ruled the Holy Roman Empire, clearly had a claim, but the last thing that Louis XIV wanted was to see a rival Austrian on the Spanish throne, allowing them to encircle France. After much diplomatic wrangling and the untimely death of several compromise candidates to act as Charles's heir, 
The final command upon his death in 1700 was for Spain's undivided empire to pass to Philip, the grandson of Louis XIV, who became King Philip V of Spain. The elevation of a member of France's House of Bourbon to the throne of Spain threatened to upset the balance of power in Europe. Nearly every other major European power declared war against France and Spain in an attempt to reverse Charles II's will. The resulting conflict would last for 12 bloody years from 1701 to 1713 and cost hundreds of thousands of lives. I'm an Atlantic historian, and I want to use these episodes of French privateering in the colonies to place the world of the Spanish Succession in an Atlantic perspective. Now, I imagine that many of you have never heard of the term Atlantic history before and are wondering what it means. Simply put, Atlantic history sees a semi-cohesive Atlantic world develop from roughly the late 15th century, when European ships began journeying first along the coast of Africa and then to the Americas, bringing these populations into contact with each other for the first time, through to roughly the early 19th century and the age of Atlantic revolutions. The core concept is that the Atlantic Ocean didn't act as a barrier, but rather as a highway, linking together populations in the Americas, Africa, and Europe, in a web of circulations and interconnections. Atlantic history seeks to break away from national histories that tend to limit their focus to the territory of a single modern state, or imperial histories that center themselves in Europe and look outwards at the rest of the world. How does that apply here? Like I said earlier, the War of the Spanish Succession has traditionally been presented as a European affair concerning grand diplomacy and royal dynastic rights, but a major catalyst for the war was non-European in origin. The proverbial jewel in the Spanish crown was its American empire. Fueled by the forced labor of thousands of enslaved indigenous and African people, Spain's colonies produced prodigious amounts of gold and silver. These riches formed the foundation of early globalization as they were sent both east to Spain's Pacific colonies in the Philippines by the so-called Manila galleons in order to trade with China, and west in the annual treasure fleet that sailed from Veracruz to Cadiz, supplying Europe with vast quantities of specie that it used to trade with the rest of the world. In fact, the great wealth produced by maritime trade had assumed a central role in European geopolitics by the 18th century, as each state tried to control as much trade as possible for itself in a system sometimes called mercantilism. As Spain's power declined, Britain and France became rivals in a contest for global power. This contest would dominate the rest of the 18th century, leading some historians to label it the quote-unquote Second Hundred Years' War. In the year 1700, England was just emerging from more than a century of tumultuous religious and political conflict. In just the past 60 years, it had experienced a civil war that resulted in the execution of one king and the establishment of a short-lived republic, followed by the restoration of the monarchy and then the overthrow of another king in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. However, the small island nation was rapidly emerging as a great power, thanks to the wealth brought in both by its trade in the Indian Ocean and its growing colonial possessions in the Americas. Britain's Caribbean colony of Barbados had created the first prototype in the 1640s for what would become the plantation system, a cash crop monoculture, sugar in this case, employing vast numbers of slaves. England's capture of Jamaica from Spain in 1655 set the stage for the rapid development of the system. The chartering of the Royal African Company five years later in 1660 
which would ship more enslaved Africans to the Americas than any other single institution, set off an explosion in the Atlantic slave trade. Indeed, one of England's goals in the War of the Spanish Succession was to attain the Spanish Asiento, a contract that gave its holder a monopoly on the slave trade to Spanish America, which was held by France during the war. France, under Louis XIV, had also seen a rapid expansion of its global empire. While not as populated or as lucrative as the English colonies, France's American claims, anchored by the fortified capital of Quebec on the St. Lawrence, spread across the vast interior of the continent, from the Great Lakes down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. This French river world, to quote from historian Robert Engelbert, was held together by a loose network of forts and trading posts that maintained the all-important system of alliances, linking the crown of France with the various indigenous nations of North America. France also held several important islands of the Caribbean, especially Martinique and Guadeloupe. In 1697, Spain recognized French possession of the western part of the island of Hispaniola. Called Saint-Domingue, this possession would become not only the richest French colony of the 18th century, but the richest colony in the world before its cruel slave regime was overthrown in the Haitian Revolution. France had previously attempted to build a large navy to rival the maritime powers of England and the Netherlands, but its disastrous defeat at the Battle of La Hougue in 1692 forced a rethink. It was clear that England, a rich and rising power, was committed to naval dominance. France had to support a large army, the largest in Europe, in fact, and it could not support the expense of an equally large navy. Instead, they turned to privateering. So what is privateering? A privateer, or corsair in French, is a private individual sailing a private ship that obtains a commission, sometimes called a letter of marque, from a sovereign authority that allows that private ship to behave as if it were a ship of war. Now, you might ask, why would anybody want to do this? Well, it's because any ships or goods that they capture were theirs to keep. Mostly. Typically, the state issuing the letter of mark would take a cut of the proceeds. In short, it's a license to engage in acts that would otherwise be considered piracy. Although it might sound shady, privateering has a long pedigree extending back to the Middle Ages and lasted until the middle of the 19th century, until its effective abolition by the Paris Declaration of 1856, now considered part of international law. The reason for the French reliance on privateers during the War of the Spanish Succession was simple. England depended heavily on its maritime trade. Anything that disrupted that trade would harm its war effort and thus benefit France. Plus, peacetime merchants and sailors put out of work due to the war would have an opportunity to make money at England's expense, and the French state would take a cut, so all would benefit. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. France actually went a step further during this conflict and adopted a policy known as the Course Royale, or Royal Corsairing. Essentially, ships of the Royal Navy were made available for private interests to lease and use as privateers. Although the bulk of French privateering took place in European waters, operating primarily out of St. Malo and Dunkirk, it was not just limited to the Old World. 
Seaborne violence soon spread to the Americas, and Corsairs, based both in Europe and the colonies, took part in this privatized global naval conflict. Some of the largest attacks in the Americas were made using royal ships that were leased as privateers. Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville, a famous Canadian corsair and the founder of French Louisiana, organized an expedition of 12 ships to the Caribbean in 1706 that ended up capturing and looting the English island of Nevis, transporting thousands of slaves from there to French Saint-Domingue. And here I have to give a quick shout out to my colleague, Mike Davis, who just last week successfully defended his thesis on the Lemoyne family. Well done, Mike. Another famous expedition was led by René Duguay-Tourin, perhaps the greatest French corsair of the entire war, who organized a massive private fleet that captured the Brazilian capital of Rio de Janeiro in 1711, forcing the Portuguese to pay out an enormous ransom. In the following year, Jacques Cassard, another well-known corsair who actually began his career on a fishing ship in Newfoundland, cruised the West Indies and captured the English islands of Montserrat and Antigua, along with Dutch Suriname, St. Eustatius, and Curaçao, the capital of the Dutch Antilles. However, the bulk of French privateering in the Americas was carried out by small actors whose exploits did not make them famous back in Europe. Most of our knowledge of their activities comes from fragmentary evidence and obscure tales drawn from the archives. For the French colonies, cut off from their mother country and desperate for resources, privateering provided a lifeline. Simple provisions like food and clothing brought in by privateers were often more valuable than cash crops and proved crucial to the survival of these far-flung settlements during the long decade of war. One of the best examples of this is the career of Pierre Maupin in French Acadia, present-day Nova Scotia. Maupin also demonstrates the circum-Atlantic character of French privateering in the Americas during the War of the Spanish Succession. He was born in France, but moved to the French colony of Saint-Domingue in 1703 at the age of 17. The reasons why are unclear, but he soon obtained letters of marque from the governor and command of the governor's own ship. Saint-Domingue had long been a pirate haven, especially the island of Tortuga, off its northern coast, and privateering crews were easy to find. Maupin, rather than cruising the Caribbean, decided to sail north in 1706 to attack New England shipping coming out of Boston. By 1700, Boston was already one of the busiest ports in the entire Atlantic world, carrying as much traffic as Bristol, which was second only to London in the entire British Empire. Maupin encountered two New England ships which were sailing down to the Caribbean and forced them to surrender. Their cargoes reveal much about colonial trade at the time. One ship was full of food, and the other was full of slaves. North American and West Indian colonies were bound by these vital trade links. North America sent food, wood, livestock, textiles, and other manufactured goods south while receiving plantation products like molasses, sugar, tobacco, coffee, indigo, and cotton in exchange. Slaves were often brought to large northern cities like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, and then sent south as part of an intra-American slave trade that has only just started to be studied in detail. Returning to Maupin, rather than take the ships back to Saint-Domingue, he proceeded north to Port Royal, the capital of Acadia. This small fortified settlement anchored the French presence on the Atlantic and was under severe strain. Having fought off repeated attacks by New England forces and completely cut off from the outside world, its food supplies were running dangerously low. Governor Subercaz of Acadia welcomed Maupin 
as a hero and a savior for bringing much-needed food to the beleaguered colony. Pierre Montpin then made his way back to Saint-Domingue to sell his captured slaves. He won a new command from the newly appointed governor and sailed north once again in 1709. This time, he captured an amazing nine English ships in a single cruise, bringing them all back to Port Royal. He even fought off and sunk four New England ships, attempting another attack on the Acadian capital, demonstrating just how much the French war effort in the colonies relied on independent agents such as Pierre Maupin. However, upon his return to Saint-Domingue in the following year, he was chastised by the governor there for selling the goods from his captured ships in Acadia, rather than bringing them back to Saint-Domingue. It seems that as a result of this, Maupin lost his command for a time. He reappears in 1711, operating between Plaisance, the capital of French Newfoundland, and present-day Placentia, which was another corsairing hotspot, and Port Royal. Maupin and other French corsairs, many of whom had also come up from the Caribbean, perhaps drawn by his tales of easy pickings, had done so much damage to New England shipping that prominent Boston merchants were complaining loudly to the British Board of Trade and begging London to take action. One complained that trade had dropped off by more than two-thirds and called Port Royal the quote-unquote Dunkirk of North America, the infamous nest of privateering in France, to raise support back in Europe. With the help of arms and naval support from Old England, New Englanders finally succeeded in capturing Port Royal in 1710. However, French Acadian colonists and their native allies continued to resist the English occupation. By this point, Maupin had grown wealthy enough that he had become an investor in other French privateering vessels, but he didn't give up the corsairing life himself. On a cruise off the coast of Acadia, where he was unloading food and munitions from a recent capture to supply France's Mi'kmaq allies, he was surprised by a heavily armed English frigate and forced to surrender after a three-hour fight. He would be ransomed after the war and obtained a position as a port official in France's newly fortified colony of Louisbourg. Thirty years later, he would take up the corsairing mantle once again and terrorize New England during the War of the Austrian Succession. Pierre Maupin had an exceptionally long and successful career as a privateer in France's American colonies. A more typical example of a colonial corsair might be Jean Léger de Lagrange. Léger de Lagrange was also born in France and moved to Quebec in 1687. By the 1690s, he was working as a ship surgeon, and in 1696, he had obtained the command of a ship in the fleet of Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville, who we had talked about earlier. In 1703, Léger de Lagrange won the financial backing of major Quebec merchants for a raid on English Newfoundland. He received letters of marque from Governor-General Vaudreuil and outfitted the ship Joibert as a privateer. Léger de Lagrange snuck into the English port of Bonavista in Newfoundland sunk two ships, and captured a 250-ton London ship known as the Pembroke Galley, whose hold was packed full of valuable dried cod. He brought the prize back to Quebec, where much of the cod was sold, and the rest sent on to Bilbao in Spain, along with the Pembroke Galley. A visual representation of the voyage actually survives today in the Museum of Saint-Anne-de-Beaupré in Quebec. It's what's called an ex-voto, a kind of Catholic devotional offering, typically an image or an object given in thanks for the assistance of a saint. In this case, it depicts the privateered ship Joibert that was offered to the church by one of the merchant backers of the venture. Although white Frenchmen from both Europe and the colonies formed the bulk of privateering crews, 
there is evidence that indigenous people also played a role. For example, in a prize proceeding before the Quebec Admiralty Court, two indigenous Acadians, one named Claude Echy and the other Claude de Gouin, are listed as forming part of the privateer's crew and entitled to a share of the profits. Likewise, correspondence between French colonial officials and the Minister of the Navy in Versailles details how New England fishing ships were sometimes captured by France's native allies operating in small boats, especially if they experienced rough weather and were blown close to shore. In one case in particular, 37 members of the Mi'kmaq nation are identified as participating with three French colonists to capture an English ship, kicking off an extended debate about whether the ship should properly be considered a French or a Mi'kmaq prize. It is also likely that black sailors served aboard French privateers during the War of the Spanish Succession, particularly for ships operating out of the Caribbean. Now, while I haven't been able to find definitive evidence of this yet, owing to the lack of records for the period, more complete records from the rest of the 18th century show that black sailors did serve aboard both French merchant and privateering vessels. It's difficult to determine the precise impact of French privateering in the Americas during the War of the Spanish Succession due to the incompleteness of the available sources. However, it is possible to make some estimates. Borrowing from figures used by historians J.S. Bromley and Nicolas Landry, at absolute minimum, 370 prizes were brought to French colonies in the Americas during the war. Martinique received the most, followed by Plaisance and Port Royal, with a handful going to Guadeloupe, Quebec, and Cayenne in French Guiana. However, this number is certainly too low, and doesn't include any prizes from Saint-Domingue, which was an active colonial privateering port in conflicts both before and after the War of the Spanish Succession. Taking all of the available evidence into account, we arrive at a more credible estimate of approximately 700 prizes. Even this number underestimates the total impact of French privateering in the Americas, since it doesn't include ships that were captured and then ransomed at sea, a common occurrence with small prizes, especially in the colonies. Considering that there were approximately 6,500 prize captures condemned by the French Admiralty during the war, an estimate of 10-12% to 12 of total prizes brought to colonial ports seems like a fair estimate. These numbers reveal the growing importance of colonies in maritime trade and European geopolitics, and show how events in Europe reverberated far beyond the confines of the continent. French privateering in the Americas during the War of the Spanish Succession helped to establish permanent legal institutions in the colonies, built the wealth of colonial merchants, and relocated thousands of slaves to the French West Indies, setting the stage for their rapid growth in the 18th century. The 1713 Treaty of Utrecht that ended the war between the now Kingdom of Great Britain following the 1707 Act of Union joining England and Scotland, and the Bourbon powers of France and Spain allowed Philip to remain on the Spanish throne, but demanded a number of concessions in the Americas. In particular, Britain would be given the Asiento, granting it a monopoly on slave trading with the Spanish Americas, and demanded that France cede its privateer strongholds of Acadia and Newfoundland to Britain. This was the first European peace treaty where American matters were front and center rather than peripheral and marked the ascendancy of Great Britain as the most powerful commercial empire in the world. In this way, the War of the Spanish Succession straddled an older Europe where states competed over dynastic affairs and control over continental territory with an emerging Europe increasingly focused on competition over trade and global empire. This has been Mike LaMonica with the French History Podcast signing off and we'll see you next week.
As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.